You are listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm your host, Jason P. Woodbury, and each week I bring you a far-out conversation with an artist I admire. My guest this week is Chris Schlarb of Psychic Temple and Big Ego, a recording studio out in Long Beach, California. His latest effort under the Psychic Temple name is called Houses of the Holy, and it is a four-sided double album. Each side of the record finds him teaming up with a different group. Uh, the Chicago Underground Trio on one part, Cherry Glazer on the other, uh, Cholo and Cinco on one, and the psych group Dream Syndicate on the other. But instead of it being a weird mess, it uh, it's very cohesive, and it sounds like there's a through line that sort of connects all of the various sounds that Schlarb is interested in. All right, well, let's get into our conversation. I'll speak with you more on the other side. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. If you enjoy the show, why don't you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or uh, just share the link to wherever you listen to the podcast, whether it's Aquarium Drunkard or one of the many podcast uh, streaming services that we are on. Uh, You can take your support a step further by checking us out on Patreon. All right, here's my talk with Chris Larb of Psychic Temple. All right, welcome to another episode of the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. I am joined here by Chris Schlarb of the Mighty Psychic Temple. Chris, it's really, really nice to have you on the show today. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Where am I? Where am I reaching you? We're over the phone right now with headphones and recording gear and all that. Are you in the studio there? Yeah, I'm. I'm at Big Ego, um, where it seems I, I am just about every day. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like you, you build the studio that you've always wanted to have, and then um, maybe a few years in, you start looking out the, the door during the daytime, and you're like, oh, I like, I, maybe I like built my own little prison, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll I start, was thinking start about it off it. dark. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it is 2020. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's 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 fair to go dark in tw- in 2020. Um, yeah, I was thinking about how I've seen so many photos of sessions that have taken place inside the studio, um, but I've never actually visited you there. Uh, and so, I, I but I feel like I have. I feel like I've been at Big Ego a lot. Sounds like you spend most of your time in there. Yeah, I mean, my I was thinking yesterday. I I, I feel like I live my my life on a kind of um, predictable loop where I'm, you know, I get up around six or so every morning. Isabella gets up at seven. I make breakfast for the family, help Adriana fill orders and take care of the kids. And then I'm around maybe 10 o'clock. Uh, I head to the post office, drop off orders or, you know, records. And then I go to the studio and I'm here until about 630 like on the dot every day. Um, then I go home, have dinner, uh, help with the kids, read Isabella bedtime story, you know, and try to scrape a little bit of time together for Adriana and I, and, and then kind of, you know, we've, we've got a, um, uh, well, tomorrow, uh, Coda will be two months old. So we've got like a, you know, a newborn. <laughs> so we're, we're going yeah. to bed at like nine or 10 every night. Um, just to try to, you know, stay sane. But yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, uh, I was kind of doing this before the pandemic happened. Um, and so I guess in some ways, you know, in some strange ways, like it hasn't, my life hasn't changed that much. I mean, I'm still just as busy with work, um, mixing and I haven't had as many active productions, but I was doing so many for years that it's honestly just given me a little bit of time to catch up. Um, So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I try not to think about it too much because I'm like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to just like, when I was a truck driver, like all I wanted to do was music, you know, and 
now that I'm doing music all the time, um, I try to uh, fight off the urge to to then want to do something else. You know, sure, <laughs> it's the, right, the, right, the ever present. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense, right? I mean, whatever it is that you, whatever it is that you're doing, <laughs> it's just such a, such a human instinct to sort of be like, I wonder if I could be doing this instead, you know, or like, uh, yeah, yeah. How long did you drive trucks, Chris? Uh, I guess I did, I did it for off and on for about 12 years. Um, and I, I miss it sometimes. Um, it was, a, it was a good job for me because I was out by myself, you know, driving like an Isuzu cab over, um, like, you know, it, it was just, I loved it, man. I, I got to visit different neighborhoods and, um, you know, all over Southern California, I really got a, a bit of an education about, you know, all these different, you know, parts of, of, of Los Angeles and um, pla- places that I probably wouldn't have gone otherwise, you know? <laughs> um, right. And, and funny enough, you know, I, I had a few really, like, interesting deliveries, like, um, like customers, because um, I was doing, like, you know, produce delivery. And uh, I, I delivered to, like, Joe Henry um, every week for years uh, in, like, South Pasadena and kind of got to meet him a little bit and his family and, uh, you know, like was giving him records that I was making like early on and then like listening to records that he was doing, um, at, at that time. And, um, yeah. yeah, it was just kind of funny. Uh, he, he wrote me a really kind letter one time saying like him and his son, Levon were like listening to some early, you know, stuff that I'd done and how much they enjoyed it. And those little things like, really helped you know they like really encouraged me to keep going when um you know it would have been probably more sensible to not keep going (laughs) sure did you listen did you listen to a lot of music in the truck or did you sort of yeah i listened to a ton of music but you know what i i listened to the most because we had the the truck that i had had a cassette deck and only the right speaker worked so um (laughs) <laughs> those trucks were abused, man. But I, you know, I loved, I loved it. Um, yeah. But I listened yeah. to a ton of like, this was like early days. This was, you know, when I started driving, like there, like the iPod didn't exist. Um, and then when it did, you know, pretty soon I kind of, you know, I was listening to a lot of like books on tape, um, like, you know, real audio books, like on cassette tapes. <laughs> And, yeah. um, uh, I would like pick them up at thrift shops and, uh, like I had this, I had so many great, like Raymond Chandler, like books on tape, like narrated by Elliot Gould. And I would just listen to them over and over again. And eventually, you know, when like audible became a thing, I was like, you know, an early, uh, subscriber to audible. And I'd, I would have like two or three books a month and I, I would just listen to everything, you know, like books about U.S. history, um, biographies, uh, books about business. Um, I always felt like I got, like, my college education as a truck driver, uh, just about specific things that I wanted to learn about. Um, And I still listen to a lot of audiobooks. I mean, strangely, you know, last year I produced uh, one of the biggest, um, like, children's audiobooks uh, for Audible, Um, uh, this book called Viva Durant, and um, that was kind of a trip um, a- yeah, a- after having, yeah. like, listened to, I mean, like, literally, like, probably th- a thousand <laughs> audiobooks. It was like, oh, okay, no, I didn't I didn't expect to be doing this, but, you know, here we are. What's what's the key to 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 great audiobook narration in your in your opinion? Like what what how do you get how do you get it right? You know what? That's fu- that's a funny question. I, I quite often, you know, especially with like a biography, I love hearing the author, him or herself reading it. Like um yeah. there's usually I love it when people take like little asides and they're like, okay, hey, listen, you know, like this is what it says. And, you know, now I can give you a little bit more information about this. Like I love that kind of peek behind the curtain type stuff. Um, I mean, there's probably, you know, oh, man, what was it? I'm trying to think the uh, one of my favorite audiobooks of all time was the Zodiac, the Robert Graysmith. Um, 
I'm trying Ooh, to okay. I'm trying to remember who who narrated that, but there were there were a few cats that like I would just listen to any books that they were narrating. Like I remember there was a guy named like Stephen Rudnicky or something. I was <laughs> just like whatever he's whatever he's reading, I want to check it out. You know? Um, yeah. But yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. There, there's a sometimes you, you listen to 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 an audio book and it's just like so I don't know like. Well, I mean, you can get this with records too, right? That it just feels like they're going through the motions, you know. Um, sure, sure, sure. So, I don't know. There's got to be it, it, there's some combination of like a, of a spark um, of some inspiration and some like real legitimate like talent and preparation ahead of time. But um, yeah, the. It, it, it's a funny thing, you know. I don't get a chance to listen to as many now because, like, my commute is like two miles. I live, you know, right down the street from the studio. Um, yeah. But sometimes I'll walk to the studio and I'll, you know, I'll like listen to stuff on on headphones, and that's kind of like the only time I really get to jump back into it now. That or a podcast or something. But it used to be like, you know, eight hours, nine hours a day um, when I was. Yeah. Yeah, and driving is the best, right, for that because because you 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 have to pay attention to 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 driving, but your head is open to to listen to a book or you know I find I have I have great retention of the stuff I listen to in the car, um, less so the stuff I listen to at home, you know, like like a book or a podcast. I know it's it's a it's a really fascinating thing that I've thought about a lot because when I was out driving, I did the whole I did my routes like on a subroutine in my mind, you know, like I knew where I was going. I, I could react in a really interesting subliminal way to like, you know, a dog running out into the street or like, you know, a car pulling out in front of me. I knew I, I could make all the turns to get to the places where I was going because I'd done it like hundreds of times. And in a right. in a funny way, because of that, I could listen more deeply to to what I was hearing than like I could in any other circumstance. It was a really interesting and unique uh, experience. And and it's part of what I miss about driving. I also miss just kind of being outside. You know, the studio doesn't have any windows. <laughs> so yeah. you know, sometimes yeah. I'm just like, Jesus, man, like next studio has got to have some goddamn windows. You know, I, I miss um, the sun and uh the blue sky and weather, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so the, the, the latest record is, is houses of the holy. And, uh, I feel like this has been something that has been kicking around in your head for a really long time. Right. When did you first start sort of conceiving of this idea that what you wanted to do was make a record where you had a different band each side? (sighs) I guess probably around the time, you know, every time I'm finishing a record, I'm thinking of like the next one. So this probably, you know, Tabor, uh, Tabor Allen, who plays, you know, drums in Psychic Temple, he was over here at the studio the other day and we were going back to listen to some stuff from Psychic Temple 4, some things that just weren't released. And, and I realized like, you know, I'm looking at the dates, um, and it was like 2015. So, I guess, uh, you know, <laughs> I guess maybe around 2015, yeah. I started thinking of this stuff. Um, you know, in a way, like, I, I, I'm just such a music nerd and a record nerd. Like, I just, I, I just think about this stuff all the time. I obsess about it. I love learning. You know, I was making my wife watch uh, the classic albums uh, for, like, you know, Rio by Duran Duran last night. I mean, like that. I think I'll just do go. You know, like yeah. I don't even really like Duran Duran, but I'm like I fucking love this shit. You know what I mean? I love everything about it. I love you know. There's always something I can learn, and there's you know, there there's a the studio and and record making has a kind of like mystical um, secret process that is really alluring. It's like maybe the closest thing that we can like get to a kind of like mainstream occult, um, you know, sort of, uh, conjuring, <laughs> you know, it's like, there's something about it. It's like, 
you can kind of only really find out about it if if you're like an initiate. Like you really have to like want to learn about it and you have to sort of get permission from the people who have done it before you. You know, there's something really fascinating about it. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, when I was working on Psychic Temple 4, I, I was really just kind of the way that some of those tunes came together. It just felt like, oh, this is I get to make like my, you know, my kind of lush, um, open, airy, you know, kind of, you know, Southern California love letter record, you know. And yeah, and and to me, in in a lot of ways, the the, the sonics and the songs um, and the approach, of course, were completely different from three. Um, and so, in turn, I really wanted whatever came after four to be wildly different. And I felt like one of the best ways to do that was to, you know, kind of uh, box myself in to a new, whole new set of really interesting limitations. Like I, w- I would have to work within these, you know, these four different band constructs, um, write the songs with these folks, um, use their band as the, essentially as like the, you know, the the foundation of, um, you know, what, what each of those sides was going to sound like. And I'd maybe augment them a little bit here or there, but not too much. Um, and that was incredibly fun. Um, each, each of those sides, you know, I get to, I get to write songs with these folks and play and I get to learn. Um, and also I get to challenge that group a little bit. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, that, that's part of what I love about producing is, um, you don't have to, um, well, you would hope that you wouldn't, um, take the easy way out, you know, like to get, well, the, yeah. to get this, the best out of an artist, you know, you want to sort of like hold them to a higher account of themselves, you know, and, uh, sometimes it's hard to do that as an artist, you know, um, you, you can only do so many things, you know, it's like you wrote the song, you're playing the song, and then to to have this sort of what I always characterize a producer as the external force, you know, it's like to have this external force there to say, okay, that was good, but, or somebody who's kind of helping to um, create a, a, an environment that is conducive to doing great work. Like, the, you know, the, these are the things that I, you know, think, feel like people don't even talk, talking about the dark art. They don't know that even that a producer does these things, you know, because, uh, you know, there's that, what's that quote about like tech, you know, great technology is indistinguishable from magic. You know, it's like, it's, well, sure. it's a similar yeah. kind of thing, right? It's like product, like great production. Like you shouldn't even see it. You should, it shouldn't even draw attention to itself. It should just be like, damn, this is great. You know, you feel it, you feel it and you hear it in the record. But, uh, but yeah, like, especially in the moment, I have to imagine that it's important that you don't have it, you know, like, you don't strike me as a heavy-handed producer, but you do strike me as a producer who's listening very intently for certain things in the performances. Uh, you know, was that... How did you sort of um, refine and develop the practice? Well, uh, let me... Before we go before we go there, you know, or we can completely disregard that question. <laughs> you know, I guess what, what, I, what I'm most curious about is do, it, does what you're listening for depend on the artist or are there some sort of uh, s- some general things that you're sort of always on the lookout for? You know, uh, I I don't want a record um, to sound like me, you know, like I really I, I want to go where wherever the artist and the material sort of demand and. And that, that is a lot of fun for me. There, there can be, I think, hallmarks of like a, of, a, of a record, of a type of record that I produce. I think you could kind of listen to lots of different records that I've made and say like, oh, that feels like one of his albums. But my hope is that it's more of an emotive or a feeling, um, you know, uh, thing than like a sonic like oh this shit sounds the same as you know it's not it's not a phil specter vibe where it's like oh it, it didn't matter if he was working with like the ronettes or tina turner like he he it would always sounded like him you know 
Um, sure. So for me, it's more of like where does like the material and where does the material require that we go, you know? Um, and the great thing for me is that if I kind of follow that and I work with lots of different, you know, artists in different scenarios, it sort of prevents me from repeating myself over and over again, um, which is what I that that is something that I desire. You know, I, I do <laughs> uh, for, for, for somebody who I mean, I was just talking about how I live my life in a kind of loop. You know, the, the funny thing is, like, I don't want the art to to feel that way. I don't want it to feel like, man, I could have put on any record that this guy did and it all felt, sounded the same. Right. Yeah. Well, so 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 employing these entirely different bands. I mean, was that sort of a way at least when you conceived of the idea of sort of maximizing that thing that you like of sort of uh creating the conditions for uh a record to have four sides that are very distinct, you know? When you talk about things that uh that you've done that aren't uh you don't want to repeat yourself, you know, this is the most obvious example of you working with like very distinct sort of, uh, like a very distinct toolkit with each of these artists, you know, um, you've got Cherry Glazer on one side, uh, the Chicago underground trio on the other, uh, dream syndicate. And then, uh, help me pronounce, is it, is it Zolo? Cholo and Cinco. Cholo and Cinco. Right. So you've got, I mean, uh, those four artists, very diverse. Yeah, they couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't be more different. And that's what I loved. Like, I felt like, you know, with Cherry Glazer, you have, like, a female-fronted kind of, like, pop-punk-type band. Um, and, you know, Clem's younger. She's, like, in her early 20s. Then with the Chicago Underground, you've got, you know, with, with Jeff Parker and Rob Mazurik and Chad Taylor, like, you know, guys that are kind of, like, I don't think I'm like speaking out of turn to call them like middle-aged um, at this point, but guys that I, you know, that I was listening to 20 years ago um, when they were putting yeah. out all these great albums on Thrill Jockey. Um, and uh, so, you know, those those cats are in different worlds, just the first two sides, you know. And then when you get to Dream Syndicate, it's like you're talking about a band that opened for like U2 and R.E.M. like in the early 80s. Um, yeah, yeah. Were you were you listening? Sorry, were you listening to the Dream Syndicate back then? No, no, no. I wasn't. Okay. I mean, I, I was aware of them um, mostly as a kind of like peripheral that you know that Paisley Underground thing um, that they were a part of with like the Bangles and was it like the the uh, the Three O'clock or something like that? You know, it's like some of these some of these bands. Yeah. Um, but uh, I kind of got hip to them, honestly. Yeah, I'd I'd heard the you know the the days of wine and roses, and I always I always dug that record, and then I actually kind of felt like was it the how what how I found myself here that more recent um, record yeah. and their last one too. I felt like man, these guys are like kind like how many bands have been around this long and are like operating at like their peak creative power, you know? Very very few, yeah. Totally. And I, and so yeah, at a certain point, Steve Wynn had had reached out to me and said that he really dug Psychic Temple and was you know wanting to you know he was like hey if like there's ever a chance for us to play some shows, and then uh, they ended up playing a couple of uh, shows out in L.A. and San Francisco and asked us to open for them, and that's when I kind of started floating the idea out there, and I was really talking to Steve and Jason about it, and I you know I was kind of like okay look you know I got this idea. You know, Cherry Glazer's on board already. I'm still figuring everything else out. You know, would you guys be up for this? And they were like, oh, that sounds great. And I was kind of like, okay, maybe, you know, people, sometimes folks say that. <laughs> you know, and you're just like, we'll see. Yeah. You know, it, it's easy yeah. to say, like, that sounds cool. And then it's a lot harder to be like, damn, we're all going to fly into Long Beach uh, as a band. You know what I mean? And like subject ourselves to the whims of, you know, this guy who we barely know. Like, that's a very different proposition, but they totally kept their word, and they were just amazing. Um, and uh, I don't know, man. It, we, we were in the studio for two or three days. I mean, honestly, 
if it had come down to it, we probably could have put an entire record out just of Psyche Temple and Dream Syndicate stuff. Um, I mean, there, there was a 15-minute unedited version of On the Slide that I love every second of it. And I had to, it's funny to think, like, we put out a double album and I still had to chop stuff out, you know? Yeah, um, sure, sure. But, uh, and then, you know, the, the last side of the record with Cholo and Cinco, just speaking about how wildly different each side is, like, this is a cat who's been, like, part of, like, the Project Blowed, like, L.A. underground hip-hop scene for, you know, 20 years. Um, you know, like, a totally, like, wildly different background, totally different approach to music um, and art and subject matter, his lyrics. I mean, I think, I think he's a brilliant lyricist. And, you know, to me, uh, I guess, in a way, if I had some kind of, like, master plan with the whole thing it was that it was actually not difficult for me to find the threads that connected each side together and I really spent a lot of time trying to kind of weave that into the album so like there were tunes on the Chicago underground side like your dreams don't pay my bills I thought we may cut that with cherry glazer um, and I actually had that tune ready to go, but I kind of, when, when we got, when we finished the five tunes that were on that side, I was like, I think this tune may be a little bit like harmonically. It's a little like, it's a little gnarly. Like it's a, it's a little more like intense. Um, and then I was like, oh, this is perfect for Chicago underground. Um, and for, for example, like Jeff ha has an incredible guitar solo, um, on that tune and it just makes it sound effortless and it's like a really hard chord progression to solo over um, so there, there were these threads where I felt like the subject matter of the Cherry Glazer and the Chicago Underground sides was totally unified um, but then the the underground side you start to get the strings kind of start coming in and, and I like that I feel like in the beginning you think like oh we're going in like full cosmic free jazz or whatever and I kind of felt like, well, that's the easy way out to me. Like that's that's like, oh, I just get to sure. I just get to trade on, <laughs> you know, what what Rob and and Jeff and Chad, like who they are. But it doesn't really require anything from them or from me. It it ends up just saying like, well, this was wasn't this cool, you know, <laughs> you know. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You wanted to you you wanted to dig deeper, big time. Yeah. And the funny thing is to me, I, 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 you know, the, the thing that I keep telling myself was like, man, I feel like I turned them into like a mid seventies, like LA, like, you know, beach boys, like house band or something, you know, like, yeah, it does have almost like a wrecking crew feel a little bit. Yeah. But you can still hear them, you know, like you can really hear who they are, but they, they are, um, they're still themselves, but they're working within this kind of more song oriented construct that I I feel like they've all done you know like you're talking like a couple of those guys are basically part of that great Sam Precop record like Chad played drums on it Rob plays trumpet on it um and then you know Jeff um and Rob are on some of those great Azita albums um but you don't get a ton of that kind of context for them um as kind of like guys that are like playing tunes and to me right, i felt right. like that was a really exciting thing to pursue um so the other cool thing is that you know then you also have jeff playing uh, electric guitar on the cholo and cinco side which ties those two together and then you have rob playing you know rob has the solo on cherry avenue on the dream syndicate side um and then the the horns start coming in on the Dream Syndicate side. I start trading off vocals with Steve Wynn, um, which is a little bit of a callback to the Cherry Glazer side where I'm trading off some vocals with Clem. And then by the time you get to Cholo and Cinco, I'm not even singing at all. It's just like... It's just these these incredible like big sort of uh, soundscapes where there's so much going on and it's, but it's, it's really tasteful still. Um, but it's very funky and it's very different, you know, it, 
so people might think like, oh man, this is this is kind of interesting. He's 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 indulging a sort of hip hop side, but that's been a part of your work going like all the way back, right? I mean, Sounds Are Active released some uh, your your label, which I you when did you form Sounds Are Active? I think that was nineteen ninety nine um, or ninety eight or ninety nine, but yeah, I mean. I've been I've been working on hip hop stuff for a long time. I mean, producing some some kind of weirdo hip hop stuff for like Bizart or Acid Rain. Um, uh, but also, I I've done a lot of work with my friend Omid Walazade, uh, who at you know at one point was going under the name OD, um, and put out a bunch of records, uh, produced all that you know amazing stuff with like Freestyle Fellowship, um, and I think. I'm on like three or four Omid records and one of them, like, I think there's some, some bus driver record that he, he produced a bunch of tracks on and sampled a bunch of things that I wrote. So there's, there's a lot of like weaving of that stuff, um, into, I guess maybe just, you know, it's just, I I love music, man. You know, like I, I love all kinds of stuff. I've always had a dream and who knows, maybe this, this will happen one of these days, but I've, I've always loved like, I love Prince Paul, that Prince Among Thieves record. Um, yeah. And I've always loved the idea of doing like, a, like kind of like a high concept rap album where I'm, I'm able to cast all these different rappers um, in, in roles, you know, because that's one of the great things about like MCs is like all these MCs have different styles that you could so easily kind of put into a kind of like cinematic landscape where you're like, oh, like, you know, Serengeti uh, has, you know, he's like this, like this would be perfect for him. Or, um, you know, uh, like AWOL 1 sounds, you know, he's got his his voice has this raspy quality and um, he'd be perfect for this type of part, you know. So who knows, maybe one day. But I kind of felt like the the, the thing with, with Cholo and Cinco, you know, he, he, he was actually referred to me by our mutual friend Kamal, um, who has had he did tons of records like as under the you know that that group named the weather with Daedalus uh, under the name radio and active and mm, uh, yeah and it we you know uh cholo and cinco and i started working on some other stuff that i was just producing for him with like live band um you know elements and some strings and some different things and then at one point during one of those sessions he kind of heard me talking about wanting to do kind of like a bigger, like Axelrod, you know, influenced type of project. And uh, he was just like, after the session was over, it was just he and I in the control room. And he was like, hey, I heard you talking about that Axelrod stuff. I want to, I want to get in on that. And I was like, man, that's years down the line because that shit's going to cost like 10 grand just to hire all the musicians and get the arrangements done. And a week later, he, he swung by the studio and gave me 10 grand cash in a, in a Ziploc bag. <laughs> and Holy I, shit. I had like two weeks to write all the music and get the arrangements done. Um, and he totally forced my hand. It was, it was, it was, a, it, it was one of those things. It was like, okay, I'll, you know, this is such a great fucking story. And like, I'm sitting here after he left and I'm like smelling, you know, the money. And I called Adriana, my wife, and I was like, come get this shit and take it to the bank. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I was just ferociously making phone calls and it's like every musician like confirmed within like two or three days. And we had like, I mean, it was literally like 16 or 17 musicians, full string section, horn section, two drummers, uh, you know, bass, piano, uh, keys, like, you know, um, yeah, it's, it, 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 it sounds even crazier to talk about it now in a time where it's like, you can't get together with more than like two or three people, um, you know. Ex- yeah, exactly. Exactly. To have that kind of level of uh, uh, that many people in a room and, and making something like that. And now a word from our sponsors. Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms help people find your work, but getting you paid is another story. Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers. Using it, you can develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to your exclusive community, premium content, and a chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken, 
Sign up on Patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and start building the steady income stream you deserve. And now, back to Transmissions. I guess the, the, the maybe the thing that would that would be make some artists nervous perhaps with a record like this is the fear that it's not going to feel cohesive or of a piece. Um, and, and I know that, that, you know, your records, uh, the psychic temple records, the, your solo stuff going all the way back, you know, uh, there's always has been this, this, I think, uh, very sort of defined feel and aesthetic, you know, you, you've already mentioned how much of a record nerd you are and, the sort of occult underpinnings of making a record and, and creating a sort of a space where a certain kind of magic can happen. And I think that, you know, uh, as a producer and an editor, of course that means, you know, cutting a lot of stuff out. And I'm sure, as you've already mentioned, you, you know, you had to cut a lot out of this to make it work. Um, but as far as that feel of just like, we've got four wildly different groups on four different sides and there's overlap and there's all that, you know, but was there any necessity for you to sort of feel like to sort of allow yourself the, the, you know, just let yourself off the hook in terms of wondering whether or not this is going to work in order for you to make this record. Did that have to happen at some point in order for you to even get it done? And then, you know, how did you feel when you, when you finished? Yeah, there is a there is a kind of like, you know, this like wrangling process. Um, and I think it's it's magnified because I know how important it is to have a producer and to also know that if I allowed someone to come in and like produce or co-produce me, I would just sabotage it, the whole process um, as as some artists have done to me. <laughs> um, yeah. So the hardest thing for me is sort of keeping that objectivity of like, hey, th this vocal take is no good or, hey, this vocal take does have flaws, but it's it it has the elements in it that I would desire from any artists, um, whether it's perfect or not. You know, it made it, it has it conveys a feeling, it conveys emotion Um you know, the, the, the kind of the most important part of the, the end of the 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 of of houses of the holy like the last you know quarter of that process was i you know i i hired my friend ronan chris murphy who's done a ton of records with like king crimson and guar <laughs> um and yeah his, two natural those are very natural reference points for psychic temple 100 percent. yeah no he's 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 brilliant though and and he has he he has that objectivity um that i don't have um, and I brought him in to help me mix and we, we just worked on the record at Big Ego for like a week. And, um, you know, I, I kind of fought him a little bit on some things and other things. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, I don't even have to worry about this now. Um, you've just solved <laughs> all these problems for me. Um, but the funny thing is after we mixed, I, I kind of was listening to everything and I was like, I'm still missing something. And what I was missing was... Um, a kind of that final sheen of like the the through line. And so what I ended up doing was I took all the instrumental mixes um, that I had done with Ronan and uh, <laughs> this is, I mean, it's total talk about sabotage. I basically took, you know, the instrumental mixes and I, I took this, the soloed vocal track and like a lead instrument and I, sent everything out to a four-track Tascam cassette tape, uh, a 246. So I basically had like your channel one and two is like your stereo mix. Channel three is your vocal. Channel four is whatever your lead or featured instrument is. And I, I, I transferred every song to cassette tape. And then I mixed the entire record back from the cassette tape. And that's what I sent off for mastering. So... Huh. There was a kind of like what happened with that process was it, it gave a, a certain uniformity uh, to the sonics um, just because it was all treated the same. And, I, you know, sometimes people wait for the mastering engineer to do that, but I, I needed to know like that it was done already um, because I still, you know, uh, 
yeah, I, I made the record. I'm not like waiting for someone else, like, please, you know, fix this for me. Um, yeah. So kind of doing that in, in that process, I actually found some things like there's a tune on the record called Little One that's on the Chicago Underground side that I had recorded that I hadn't even remembered um, and I didn't even think that I had a good take of it. And when I was going back to transfer everything to tape, I found it and I was like, oh, yeah, like at the time I was just so critical um, and I thought, no, I, d I don't have it. This is no good. And now um, I think that that song is like totally integral <laughs> to the album and that side of the record. I mean, it's the only solo piece on the whole album um, that's just me by myself. But I, I kind of feel like, um, yeah, that, you know, so much of what I write about is like, a kind, there is a, I think there is a kind of melancholic element, but I'm also balancing that with like joy. Um, yeah. And that's a tune that like when I wrote it, uh, man, it was just, you know, I wrote it about Isabella and, you know, just the idea of like my, you know, kind of coming to terms with my own mortality and, uh, you know, not to be uh, melodramatic about it, but it was a kind of, uh, it was a therapeutic um, – I, I love it when things can be, like, sad and funny and sweet and, you know, like the, this complex, um, uh, you know, um, uh, I, you know, the, I, I, if it's just one thing, man, like, sometimes that's great. Like, sometimes you just want rage <laughs> or sometimes you just want anger or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I think – for me, um, I always think I, I try not to do this. God, how corny is this? But I do think about that lyric from uh, from when I know uh, from Psyche Temple Three is like, "Can I make every good thing last?" You know, like in a weird way, like that is such a a, a crystalline communication of how I feel. You know, and it's like I, this is what I love about making records. It's what I love about having a family. It's that. There are these moments, um, you know, if you are investing in people in that instead of things, um, then you you get all of these rewards back that you would never get from stuff. Like people are so obsessed with like gear or equipment and it's like you could have all the shit, man. And like it doesn't matter. You know, I, I, I wrote a whole movie uh, with, with Tabor years ago about the idea of like Lenny Kravitz like owning – the Beatles recording console and it's like but he's still Lenny Kravitz like he's not the fucking Beatles like it doesn't matter you know um, right like, is that is that a is that a real thing does he really own uh, the he, console he really does yeah the red 37 um, okay okay uh, we, we did a whole movie man and I got Sufjan to, to give us <laughs> $8,000 to make this fucking animated movie and some parts of it exist but all these incredible and talented people, you know, we paid them all and then they got, all got real jobs and then the, the whole thing didn't get finished. But um, like the audio is all done and there's tons of like like bits and pieces of animation. But like the 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 crew on the soundtrack of that film, it's called uh, Psychic Temple Saves Music. It's like Serengeti <laughs> is like the main villain. Uh, R. Stevie Moore is like a character and like does the opening narration. I mean, it's just like... It's such a great and fun thing that maybe one day, you know, we can figure out a way to get it finished. But it, it, it was a funny riff off of that idea of like, you know, if you have the stuff, you know, like it just doesn't matter. Like, you know, th this is why, you know, why, why we can still listen to like, you know, you could listen to the, these shitty videos on your phone and still feel something because there's something happening there. That's that's right. Some, that's right. Something's communicating. Or conversely, these old like Alan Lomax like field recordings that are, you know, by modern standards don't sound awesome. They're totally riveting, you know, because of that. Well, yeah, you know, there's the there's the the magic comes back into it, I think, at that point. Um and I'm curious about, you know, 
I mean, Jesus, dude, I could I could ask you nothing but questions about the animated film you made about Lenny Kravitz. That you got <laughs> we had to change the name. Stevens he, to, he was called the Kravitz um, in the early draft of the the screenplay, but then we changed it to the Grundle, like a more okay. Ge- okay. a more general kind of just like he he became the janitor. He was the janitor at Abbey Road, and um, the whole the whole <laughs> the whole uh, concept, the whole idea was that after the the Beatles broke up, they had to destroy the console that they recorded it on because it was like a magic ritual, and that was part of why the band broke up, and what precipitated like sort of the coming dawn of like this new evil terrible age of me- bad music, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. And, but yeah. But the janitor at Abbey Road, you know, basically fished all of the parts of the console together and re rebuilt it for himself. You know. So, um, anyway, uh, Mike Watts in it. He, you know, he's he's like a giant. He lives in a in a in a giant base cave. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah, and he. <laughs> yeah. So if the funny thing is. A lot of the music on Psychic Temple Three was supposed to be like woven throughout. Yeah. So like, there's yeah. a tune called uh, "Getting Home," and Phil Glenn, who you know plays in the band, he he dies in the, you know, I'm not I'm not giving away anything. Like you know, who knows if we're ever going to finish this thing? But spoiler um, alert for this movie, you, you know, can't spoiler watch. Spoiler alert. There is a full 30-minute animatic that was done um, of just, like, sketches with, like, kind of, like, a hilarious, like, reading of the... Anyway, I, I don't want to get people's hopes up. The, you know, people always want <laughs> what, what they can't have, right? It's like, I, I spent three years and, like, uh, countless, you know, dollars making Houses of the Holy, and people would be like, oh, okay, that's cool, but what about this animated film that, it, you know, it's like... Please just fucking buy Chris, it, buy the thing that I finished. You yeah, know? <laughs> Chris, we we just we just want more. Chris, we just want what we can't. We just want what we want what we can't have. Dude, just like, like you kind of want to be a truck driver when you're sitting in your beautiful studio. You no know shit. what I mean? It's like this is the human condition. But I, no, you know, I no do doubt about it. I do want to ask you though a little bit about that occult thing and the sort of magic. You know, you talked about the Beatles needing to destroy the console at the end in a sort of ritual, and. And you talked about how a studio session and a good, you know, record record production is also sort of magic. Um, you have not been afraid of playing around with a certain amount of sort of occult imagery or uh, or actual just cult imagery and designations. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I'm curious, you know, uh, when 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 you talk about something like magic, you know, what what are you talking about? Are you talking about sort of the mysterious force that uh, exists in a room when people are playing music together? Or are you talking about something uh, maybe just more connected to art in general? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I I feel like, you know, I, I when I was truck driving, man, I spent a lot of time reading these books about like Jonestown and the Manson family and um, the psychology of 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 the occult and of like cult behavior, and one of the things that I, I had a lot of fun doing was it helped organize a little bit of an image um, for Psychic Temple. By the time we got to Psychic Temple three, right? Because Psychic Temple one had a more like uh, honest kind of like a mis- mystery to it. There there were these like little icons for each of the songs and. These, this kind of like hazy picture of us on on the front cover, but then with two, we're kind of like splitting the difference between like vocal music and instrumental music, and it becomes a little harder, I think, on that record. To it was harder for for me to articulate like who who the fuck is in charge here, you know, um, and, and, you know, and then and then by the time we get to to three, and I was like, okay, I have to be the front man, whether I like it or not. Um, it was like, oh, okay, well, the, what, you know, what can we do on a visual level, um, on a storytelling level, to communicate something? And I really, I would really, really was playing around with the idea of like the 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 a band is a cult. They do work the same in the in, a, in very similar ways, just like a, you know, a traveling like church, like a revival. It's like you go from town to town and so on. Um, 
with with the with the process of like the magic that is the magic of like a session is there it's to, it's addictive you know like things happen um when people are put together that would never happen when they are apart you know um yeah and and that is why i just you know it's like dude how unreasonable is it for a, like a you know like a 36-year-old father of three to open a recording studio in this day and age. Like, I don't have any money, you know? Like, I don't have shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was a right. fucking truck driver. I was like, you know, I was making like, I don't know, $30,000 a year for t- a decade. You know what I mean? Like, um, with kids, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, that if, if anything, it kind of like tells you how um, obsessed I am with like, creating that a place to capture that you know and so there became this really interesting process where it was like oh uh, somebody recently was like oh like you did make a church you know like this big ego like the studio is the holy place where (laughs) these things happen and i was like man i didn't even think about that shit you know which to me that's part of the fascination of of uh, of playing with some of the some of this imagery and the idea that, um, you know, that uh, it's, I don't know, it's its the hard way, um, but it, it is the worthwhile path. Um, I had to do it. I had to, and I've thought many times about giving up, um, uh, you know, but... I had to I had to give it a shot. Like once I kind of started making more records with just like putting all these incredible personalities together and then seeing like what came back to me, I was like, okay, it, this makes me happy. It makes all the people on the session happy. Um, maybe I could even, you know, make some records like this for other people. And then I started getting hired to produce more records where people were referencing my own albums. And then I kind of didn't have to convince them of the process anymore, you know? Yeah, because you you had created the thing that they could see, oh, this is evidence of what I believe we could do. Yes, yeah. Which, you know, in the beginning it was tough because it kind of felt like, oh, every time I'm getting hired to produce a record, I'm having to sort of like convey my this gigantic worldview <laughs> to 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 the client you know like okay we're going to do things like this because a b c d and so on and now it it just becomes so evident it's like well you know let me play you one of any uh, of the hundred records that i've produced in in any myriad of styles <laughs> and and all you know, and you can kind of take a pick and I'll tell you exactly how we did it and we can do your thing like that, you know. But e- even yeah. even even in pursuing a kind of like general template, it's never the same twice. Um, and that is part of what's kind of so alluring about it is that I can just tweak a personality or two, a musician or two, an instrument or two. The whole thing's totally different, you know. Um, so... The, the funny thing is with the, the cult thing and that persona or me as a cult leader, um, I was really playing it up. I had a lot of fun playing it up live. And a, a lot of times for the live shows, you know, the, for the last few years, it almost felt like almost as much of like a funny like stand up or performance art thing as much as like a musical performance. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> then, then we... Uh, then we had like a, a legitimate cult leader um, elected for the president of the United States and the shit just did not become fun for me anymore because the things that I was doing, I was recognizing, th- th- you know, like on a, like a mass scale that, that were happening, you know, like um, I would, I would, I would use the, those techniques, you know, those, the kiss and the slap techniques, those WWF <laughs> techniques, right, you know, right. the fucking soap opera shit. And it's like, oh, no, like it was a joke. I was having fun doing it, uh, but I knew that it wasn't real. And then all of a sudden it became very real. And then I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, so I I don't even think I took press photos for the new record. You know, (laughs) I was just like, no, no, it's just I didn't want to just got to. Yeah, I didn't want to do it. Do you feel like that made you were you were you I don't we don't uh, 
you know, Chris, to be honest, this might air after the election. So it's hard to say what, um, it's hard to say what's going to happen. <laughs> what's going I'll, on. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep this part in just in case by the time we do air this, uh, you know, like the country doesn't exist anymore or something, you know, like <laughs> We're uh, finally torn apart. It's just a record for the, for the ages, you know, but, um, but you know, like playing around with those, you know, playing around with that persona, um, and I saw you do it live a couple times, you know, you, you would, uh, similar in similar ways. I've, I've seen people like maybe Tim Heidecker, who's been a, a guest on this podcast, you know, or curb your enthusiasm, you know, or Larry, Larry day, you know, like yeah. sort of Larry David type stuff. You'd kind of use the audience's discomfort against them a little bit. Oh, and you'd kind of, you'd, you'd kind of weaponize it. Did you find doing that? You know, you mentioned that you were having fun with it. And then of course it became not fun anymore because for all the, the various reasons, but when you were doing that, did you find that there is a sort of, um, command over reality that that sort of persona allows you to adopt and and did did that make you you know what's it like playing with harnessing that kind of like maybe a weird energy you know what i mean yeah you know it's funny er, earlier you know when we were talking about the occult and conjuring i just thought i kept thinking of like jack parsons you know what i mean like that whole fucking crazy thing with him like conjuring that woman you know like yeah yeah <laughs> like in a way making records is a con it's a conjuring you know um yeah, right like it's like this shit didn't exist and now it exists well how did it exist well i made it happen <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah it's like th this is one of the fascinating things where i find these parallels the problem or the trick is maybe not I don't, I don't know. You have to believe in it to a certain degree. You have to believe like wholeheartedly. And, and, and in that regard, you know, I'm a tragic, I, I just love music so much. I love sessions so much. Um, I love making records so much that I just believe in that, um, with, with a real, uh, you know, with a real purity. I, I'm, I'm, I truly honestly love it, you know, and, there have been plenty of projects that I just, you know, that they paid or whatever. And I was just like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like the music or I don't like the people or the vibe. And I just won't do it, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of effort to save the thing that I love, you know, um, so that it doesn't just become transactional. But kind of, you know, what, what I was experiencing and like doing the performance, the performative side I kept thinking, well, okay, well, one part of this is like, God, how many shows have I been to where the music was fine, but the, the it was so boring, you know? Um, part of this is it, you're, you're in, you know, whether you like it or not, you're in the entertainment business. <laughs> like people want to be, they paid money to be entertained, you know? Um, now that, that entertainment can take all of these different forms, you know? Um, uh, it could just be, you know, like I, I, when I played these shows with Dream Syndicate, I noticed like Steve doesn't really talk to the audience that much. It's like they're there to like rock, you know, and he yeah. he is much more like soft spoken. And the, the shows that I opened for them, I, I felt like the audience was truly uncomfortable. And these were like, you know, we we like sold out the El Rey. Well, I should say Dream Syndicate sold out, <laughs> sold out the El Rey. And, you, you know, helped. You helped. Uh, uh, maybe. But, you know, I'm up there and I'm dressed in my all white, you know, and I remember I said something, you know, I was just, I'm riffing. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm part of it is like, I'm just trying to have fun, you know. But I'm like up there and I'm, I'm saying like, you know, you may wonder why I'm dressed in all white. Well, I thought of what every male uh, would be. Uh, the the wardrobe of every male who would be at the show tonight, and I just did the opposite because they were all yeah. wearing black. They it was like they had their all they had their own uniform on. So there, there was to me a little bit of like, uh, you know, I don't know. It was it was fun to kind of, um, maybe as a as a self conscious person, it was fun to kind of like turn the spotlight back on to the the people who, you know, maybe. Have, haven't, <laughs> didn't think twice about themselves, you know? Um, sure. 
but sure. you know, but now we're in a, we're now we're in a moment where you know that that kind of thing has been like weaponized for evil. <laughs> so yeah, it, it immediately. Yeah. I remember playing a gig in like Bloomington, um, and I said something along the lines of like, you know, everybody's looking for a leader, and I remember the whole room went quiet, and it was this like heavy moment, and I was like, uh oh, <laughs> like. It, we've, we, we've crossed over, you know what I mean? Like, it was a joke. It was funny. And it because it was playing with that line, I mean, I had people coming up to me, like, saying, like, I, you know, we had these fake pamphlets about Psychic Temple. And I had people saying, like, I want to know more, you know? Like, please, like, like t- tell me, you know, I, wh- who can I talk to to get more information about this? And I'm like, oh, man, like... The difference, perhaps, is that there are some people who just don't want the mantle or the obligation of being a leader, uh, or, 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 or I don't know. I, I, in a way, like I feel that way. Like I don't. I have a family. I, I'm trying to like make a living doing good, making good art. You know, like I, I don't want to be responsible for people's lives per se. You know. Um, but there are some people who do want that or they're so sociopathic that they don't they don't care about the consequences yeah. of taking that responsibility um so yeah it's a, it's a fascinating thing um to observe and it did make me think a lot about what i was doing um and, you know, I haven't really played very many shows <laughs> since then <laughs> i i feel like i got to shift um, from having to worry about like kind of a little bit of a tour schedule to support records and to just, I mean, I, I've just been in the studio like, you know, every day. So in a weird way though, producing and making records that requires a certain performative, um, you know, uh, uh responsibility as well. You know, um, I'm, I'm going, I've, I've got a session out at East West in Hollywood tomorrow, you know, it used to be Western United recorders and, you know, we're cutting, I don't know, 10 or 12 pieces of music for a musical that I'm producing in like a 12-hour day. And there's a there's an eight-piece band in there and my client and two engineers. And, you know, f- at least for tomorrow, I'm their leader, you know. But then af- yeah. after that session's over... <laughs> <laughs> like I don't I don't have to necessarily be responsible for the mental, you know, well-being of 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 each of those people. So you kind of like being able to maybe go in and out of it as as is required? Totally. Yeah. I mean, what, to to go out of it doesn't mean to like abdicate like friendship or love or r- responsibility. It just it there there are these times where it's I get to be sort of yeah, I guess, I mean, the funny thing is like building the studio, being the producer, uh, running the record label, it, it is all, I mean, talk about control freak, right? It's like I'm, I'm controlling every aspect, but it's like I'm also the guy cleaning the bathroom, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, no, nobody thinks about that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, sometimes if you want to do it all, that means you really got to do it all. Totally. It's like, okay, well, I get, I get to pay the electric bill and, you know, I get to take the trash out and it's kind of like, okay, well, this is part of the job too. Thanks for listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the program. Andrew Horton edits our audio. Artwork by Daryl Norson and Heavy Hymns. And Jonathan Mark Walls makes a video version of our show. Executive producer and main man, Justin Gage. For show notes, track lists, links to our guests, archives, and a whole lot more, visit Aquarium Drunkard. If you like the show, please share it. And if you want to take things a step further, check us out on Patreon. All right, we'll be back next week with another strange conversation for these strange times. Thanks for listening. Shark to the dark.